Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 398. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 398 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning producer, mixer, and engineer Dave Schiffman, who's worked with System of a Down, Audio Slave, The Mars Volta, uh, Johnny Cash, Tom Petty, Adele, Vampire Weekend. Shall I go on? Yeah, lots of great people. <laughs> so Dave and I met because we're both part of this Dolby Atmos Mixers Network. And I went down to Los Angeles and got an opportunity to hang out at Dave's mixing room there at his house. And we had a great hang. And I had that kind of light bulb moment in the middle of our conversation where I was like, duh, you got to have this guy on the show. And we scheduled and got him on. And we have a two-part interview for you. So really looking forward to it. I really enjoy talking with Dave. And I think you'll get a lot of great information out of his interview. So Dave Schiffman, part one, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's ask ourselves, who are we spending our time with? And are they having a positive influence on us? So I'm assuming that the majority of you listening to this want some type of audio career and some form of audio discipline. And you enjoy the craft of audio one way or the other. I don't care if you're making movies, video games, music, you know, whatever you're doing, as usual, as I always say, whatever the discipline. So let's examine who we're spending our time with. I'm not talking about your spouses or, you know, significant others. I'm talking about the friends, the, um, the colleagues who we discuss all of this stuff with. And ask yourself if those people are having a positive influence on you. If the answer is no, uh, you might want to consider spending it instead with people who encourage you and support you, uh, that challenge you to grow and get better at your craft. Uh, these are people that get you to think about the bigger picture of your career. And ideally, you are learning from these people every time you spend time around them. And at the same time, they are looking for reciprocation. They are looking for encouragement and ideas from you as well. It's a two-way conversation. And when you spend your time around people who positively influence you, it truly affects your mindset. Spending time around forward-thinking people who do the things I mentioned and who even have had some success can seriously rub off on you. And the cumulative effect can be enormous. I've said the same thing in previous rants about how you spend your time. You know, if you're spending your time on social media, just always reacting to ridiculous posts by people and getting into arguments and watching the doom and gloom news and just what, what is it called? Doom scrolling, right? That will affect your mindset. It's the same thing with people, right? You may have people in your life who do not improve your mindset positively because they're just generally negative thinkers. And if you hang out with those people continually, they will drag you down. They will prevent you from moving forward and generally affect your mindset about yourself and what your potential is. Because remember, misery loves company people. 
I'm talking about those negative people who are not motivated. They always have, you know, a, a victim mentality about life. They think that they're owed something. They provide nothing but a self-defeating attitude. And they think, oh, I'll never get a career-changing gig. And the world of music or film or games is conspiring against them to not succeed. Look, life is tough. I get it. And obviously, the world of audio in all these industries is super tough. But if you want to attract people who want to work with you, having a shit attitude is not going to work in your favor. I assure you. Nobody owes you anything, however. You need to prove yourself with a good attitude and results. And you have to have perseverance. You have to get knocked down and get up again. It's like this for pretty much all, all industries, all things in life. You know, if you get knocked down, laying down on the ground and going, oh, it's never going to work. That's not going to yield positive results. But the flip side of that, if you have some success, acting like a self-entitled asshole is definitely not a recipe for continued success because people remember how you make them feel. And if you are a blowhard who talks about yourself continually and how great it is, the accomplishments you've had, people just grow tired of that, right? And they don't want to be around that. So in the past, uh, I know I've mentioned it a thousand times, I have a mastermind group. Uh, we do a Zoom call every Friday. These are like-minded people who over the years have really challenged me. They've held me accountable and they remind me every week of what is possible. And it's been nothing short of life-changing to spend time around these individuals, even if it's on a Zoom call. So I want to encourage you to re-examine what you want for yourself in your audio career. Find like-minded people to spend time with. Uh, you know, ideally in a mastermind style, once a week call or an in-person hang or just a general hang once a month or something in your community. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be always organized, but, you know, having some organization to it kind of helps. But be open to suggestions to help yourself move forward and be willing to help others do the same. You got to stay focused, stay positive, and be ready and willing to course correct if things are stagnating. You know, don't have that mentality of, well, I've always done it this way. So, you know, I call bullshit on that. Don't do that. Stay the course, but also be willing to change course when things are not working. So to conclude, like I say, Stay positive, stay open to suggestion, but also be willing to help others do the same in that reciprocal kind of mentality and, uh, and move forward with your career. I could go on and on and on about this, but I'll conclude and let you all get on with it. But I think you know where I'm going with this. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All righty then, let's get to it. Dave Schiffman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Great to see you again. For the audience, I was just there for a day a couple of weeks ago, stopped in to see Dave's place, and that was a real treat. We'll talk more about that. We'll talk more about Atmos, which is what we were talking about. But let's let's get started with the beginning. Where did you grow up originally? I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, just over the George Washington Bridge, Teaneck, New Jersey. Growing up, like, what role did music and or technology play in your life in the household with siblings, with your parents? How did that come up? There was always music going on in the house. I took piano lessons for a long time. You know, started when I was really young and probably went till I was like maybe 14 or 15 and decided it wasn't cool anymore. So I stopped. What a mistake that was, right? <laughs> but there was always music going on. My, my dad loved uh, big band music and he had a ton of old big band vinyl and Frank Sinatra and uh, things like that. And, you know, this is the 80s. So he gradually kind of segued into like yacht rock like a combination, like Yacht Rock, Big Band. It was kind of like in that world. So that was kind of what was going on in the car and what was going on on his, his hi-fi in the den. 
My older sister also was, is a big music fan. And a lot of stuff I discovered initially when I was a kid through just lifting stuff out of her collection Hmm. and checking it out. I think this is probably every recording engineer on the planet has the same story. My dad gave me this little reel-to-reel tape recorder, which just mesmerized me. So I was always kind of playing around with that. I wasn't recording any music or anything, but just kind of the the actual technology and trying to listen to it backwards or, you know, just <laughs> all the things that still make me laugh. And did you play an instrument in band? Yes, I did. I played trumpet. I was a horrible trumpet player for 10 years. And I just just never practiced. It was just something that I just stuck with. And, you know, it was fun. It was fun to be in like concert band. Like I really enjoyed that. And you were stuck doing marching band as well, which I which I hated. And the last year I somehow managed to get out of that. I, I don't quite remember how I did it, but that just really didn't didn't work for me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a very good student for trumpet, but it was great to like have that uh that thing where you're playing with other people, just you know, learning about dynamics like that and about how to read a score. You know, it was it was good for for stuff like that and certainly proved to be helpful in my my future career. That's funny. Marching band for me was I played on the snare drum line and that was fascinating to me. And the one thing that I learned out of that time period that I still carry with me to this day is we were always told, you know, assume that what you're playing is wrong and what the marching snare player to your right or to your left is correct. So it forced us all to listen to one another. That's interesting. That's a, that's a really fascinating way to look at it. Assume you're wrong. What about your band directors? Did they have any influence on you whatsoever? I'm going to say no. Okay. <laughs> Fair <laughs> like, enough. Like, like I said, I, w- I wasn't a very good student. There wasn't really a lot of inspiration there. There was a lot of tolerance there. Like a lot of <laughs> like they were there for their job and yeah. it wasn't really inspiring, so to speak. I think it was more self-inspiring <laughs> and just other people in the band who, who did enjoy what they did. Did you ever progress to another instrument like guitar or bass or drums? I have some very, very minimal guitar knowledge, but I would say incredibly minimal. I feel like what what I got out of piano and trumpet was just the ability to communicate musically and understanding basic theory. And it just kind of helps with that communication when you're in the room with a band or with a musician, I think it just enables the communication to be better, smoother. Do you carry the theory with you? Did you remember it? I remember some of it. You know, I wish I remembered more of it, but there's definitely some stuff that does serve me well, even as simple as like steps, half step, whole step, something like that, or minor versus major. And just like little things like that can really help start a conversation about something Mm. or help in a direction. I always like to say that when I'm working with a band or an artist, that part of my job is to ask the question, not necessarily to be the one with the answer, but to propose the question and start the dialogue. I think it makes it just kind of a more 
all-inclusive kind of situation. At what point did recording come onto your radar as a possible job situation for you? Well, I think people had tried to talk me out of it all the way through college. I would get oh, there's, there's a lot of math involved in that. You've got to be really good at math. Oh, well, you know, that's a lot of science. Oh, well, I don't think you're tall enough to do it. <laughs> Somebody actually said I wasn't tall enough to do oh it. God. And I just kind of kept picking away at it. And I didn't really have any connections within the business. Like I was kind of going completely from scratch. And I lucked into a job at a voiceover studio in New York City. And that was my first introduction into the recording studio world, so to speak. When was the first time that you were aware of recording technology that you started to dig deeper into possibly working in studios? I think when I started to read album covers more, Mm. when I became a little more interested in how names were consistent, carried over from one record to another, or studios, or, oh, well, this guy mixed that, and he mixed that. Oh, that's interesting. And I I just kind of started to put that together. And every once in a while in the album art, you'd see pictures in in the studio. And those were my favorite pictures, because I was like, what is going on there? Yeah. I was just so, my curiosity was so piqued by that. And just the idea of how does that even work is something that stuck with me as a curiosity from probably from early high school on, but I didn't really have the opportunity to learn about it probably until I was maybe like a junior or senior in college. You know, the whole like looking at the record cover and tracking like, oh, wait, this guy worked on this record and oh, this studio and this producer... It's somewhat similar to me to those who really follow sports, baseball or basketball players or coaches. Yeah, exactly. And there's also kind of a a strange element of train spotting in there too. It's like, oh yeah, this record was done at A&M and this one was done at Power Station. And I don't think that people today have that same experience that those who grew up looking at vinyl records on a regular basis as the only media of music to pay attention to. They don't have that same experience of tracking studios. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's a little embarrassing, but I have to say when I was in the record store and kind of going through the stacks, if I found something where, where I recognized the producer, I was more inclined to take a chance on the record. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, he worked on this, so let me check this out. And I can't say for sure what grew from that, but... Something like Tony Visconti did all the Bowie records. And then it's like, oh, he worked on who's this T-Rex guy? <laughs> and and grabbing T-Rex and getting turned on to that. So it definitely was a self-education slash obsession, I guess. Yeah. I fondly remember going into Amoeba Records in San Francisco one time. And I had heard this Dave Matthews record on the radio or this single that I knew Carl Durfler did. And I'm a fan of mm. Carl's. He's a, he's a great guy and he's a great engineer. Yeah. And I went into the record store specifically to get that record 
not even being a Dave Matthews fan. And the guy behind the counter was like, oh, are you going to go see him when they come to town? I said, no, nah, I don't even really like Dave Matthews. And he was like, what? <laughs> what? Why are you buying this record? And I said, oh, this guy I know worked on it and I want to check it out. He was like, oh. And it's like, it killed the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's funny. I think I've definitely, am guilty of the same thing, just seeing, oh, Chad Blake mixed this. Oh, I want to hear what this is about. Right. And I think it really started from Steely Dan records. Like those were the first records that I was really obsessive about the personnel on the record. And that helped me connect to other music because it was all session musicians. It was all these guys who played on everything like in the 70s and 80s. It was just fascinating to find where they came out of or who else they were playing with. Because I think when you don't really know what making a record is about and you see, oh, well, this drummer, oh, he plays with Steely Dan, so he must be in the band and that must be his job. He plays drums for Steely Dan. And the fact of the matter was Steve Gadd was playing on three or four records a day, you know, <laughs> and that clearly was not his only job. And that was probably a three-hour day for him where he played one or two songs or whatever. And coming to that realization, like kind of as I learned more about how it all worked, was really like a next level thing for me, just in terms of understanding how it all worked. Not that it really works like that anymore, but right. just the world of session musicians. And in the 80s, a lot of bands didn't play on their records. That became a kind of a weird tradition where a producer would come in. The first thing you do is fire the drummer. And you'd bring in Steve Gadd or Omar Hakim or Jeff Picaro, who would come in and play your drum tracks in one day, and he'd play them flawlessly. It would be perfect. Right. And then it'd be like, well, I don't know if the bass player is cutting it. So next day, Nathan East shows up to play all of your bass tracks. It was that. And there was a lot of that. I can only speak for New York, but that was a big thing in, in New York record production was these guys just came in and replayed everybody's record. And you know, the whole like picking albums to listen to based on familiarity with a producer or an engineer or, you know, even a musician, for me, it's, it's very similar to films. It's like, sure. Oh, Stanley Kubrick did that. I don't care. Let's watch it. Let's see what it's like. Yeah. Chad Blake does anything. I don't care what it is. I'll check it out. My interest has already peaked. It's like, oh, cool. All right. I got to check this out. As a matter of fact, that's how I discovered a band called the American Music Club. Ah, uh, right. They're out of San Francisco, I think. Yep. And I was listening to a Los Lobos record that Chad had done. I don't know how I fell into American Music Club, but he had done the, the one with Mitch Froome. I think that was Mercury. And that record just is so cool sounding. There's just something like, I mean, the band never really, I guess, got over, so to speak. But right. there's just something really cool about the vibe. It was one of the first records I heard where they were using uh, marimba. I'll have to go back and revisit that record. It's really a cool record. And from there, I discovered uh, Jimmy Scott because Mitch Room and Chad did a record with little Jimmy Scott that sounded like a 1940s jazz record. Jimmy Scott was a castrati and he sounded like, sounded like a woman, super uh, high voice. Is that what a castrati is? Well, that's the Italian term in opera 
is they would actually castrated people so they could sing the higher notes. (laughs) So they were called castrati. And I don't know that Jimmy Scott was actually castrated, but whatever his situation was, he just had a super high voice, but it was so cool. Hmm. And Mitch and Chad just made this phenomenal record with him. And it always just reminded me of New York City, like at two in the morning. Wow. That was the picture that record always painted for me. Let's go back to the voiceover place that you got a gig at. Yeah. That was in New York. And Mm -hmm. what was your experience there and your takeaway from that? Well, my takeaway was I had no interest in working in the voiceover business because it was just, it was horrible. And it was a fairly abusive situation. I was relegated to the tape copy room where they would make a commercial voiceover and then they'd bring me back a little quarter inch reel like with a 30 second spot on it and they'd say okay we need 300 of these and i had five dupers that ran at high ish speed so i would set them all up and run it and the problem was they were inconsistent so i had to spot check every single one of them and make sure it made it onto the tape so that was what 60 runs i think because i had five submissive machines wow what a boring job oh my god it was horrible so it was a lot of smoking weed during lunch <laughs> and just <laughs> doing something to just like destroy the monotony a little bit and at some point i went to my boss and i was like i really want a chance to like progress what's it going to take for me to get in the rooms and to start actually recording the voiceovers. And he was pretty cut and dry about it. He's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You're not going to go up in the ranks here. And I was like, okay. So that was when I was like, okay, well, I got to figure out another option, another opportunity. And besides which, like I said, I had no interest in the voiceover world. I was just looking for a way to get out of the, the dupe house. And I still didn't really know anybody who worked at a music studio. And then there was a, one of the in-house engineers at the voiceover studio had a friend who worked at a studio called A&R Studios, which was Phil Ramone's studio down on, I think it was like 8th and 43rd. And that was like a legendary studio. That was the power station before the power station. Mm. So many amazing records made there. So he got me an interview down there with the studio manager, this guy named Milton Brooks, who was about a thousand years old when I got there. And I go in, nervous as hell. I sit down. He's chewing on a cigar. He's got on his polyester suit. And he looks at me. He's like, okay, what do you want? And I was like, well, I'm looking for entry level into a recording studio. He's like, why? I said, because I want to be a recording engineer. And he's like, you're kidding me. Why do you want to do that? And one of the staff guys walks by. I don't remember his name. We'll just say Bob for argument's sake. He's like, hey, Bob, Bob, come here a second. Bob, this is Dave. He wants to be a recording engineer. And then the two of them just laughed at me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, so I'm guessing there aren't any openings. He's like, no, we have no openings. Sorry. And I didn't say this because I was 
so in awe of actually being in the studio, but it's like, why did you even agree to see me? That was the extent of the conversation. And I was summarily shown the door and walked out. And there was another place. Oh, what's the name of that place? I think it's still there. He was a great theremin player. I think the owner has since passed, but mm. he was like, this is going to drive me nuts. All the people from New York listening are going to go, it's, it's. Yeah, exactly. And he was just building his studio at that point. And I think the same guy who got me the interview at A&R hooked me up with this guy. So I went over it. They're still like building the room out. I go in and I sit in his, his office and he's like, okay, same thing. Like, what do you want? I was like, well, I, I'm looking for entry level as a recording engineer. He's like, all right, well, do you know how to line a tape machine? I was like, no. Do you know how to fix gear? I said, no. He's like, well, I don't really have any use for you then. You need to know how to do all that stuff before I would even consider hiring you. I was like, okay. <laughs> so another one bites the dust. Wow. Yeah. Kind of a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, exactly. It's like how I want that experience, but where do I get it? You're telling me you won't give it to me. So I think like another couple months went by and this new studio manager took over the voiceover place and we became really friendly. And she had a friend who was a runner over at a place called Skyline Studios. Mm. His name was Bruce Calder, by the way. I don't know if he's still an engineer, but she says, Bruce got a job at the power station. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. I said, what's happening at Skyline Studios? When is he leaving? She said, I think he's giving notice next week. I said, can you tell me the day he gives notice, the hour he gives notice? Yeah. She's like, Okay, I'll call Bruce and, and check it out. And Bruce, was he was really cool about it. He said, tell him, I'll let you guys know as soon as I give notice. And sure enough, he did. So at some point, Lisa gets on the intercom and she's like, Dave, it's time. He just gave notice. So I literally put down what I was doing, walked over, called the studio. I was like, hey, I was wondering if you guys had any openings for runners. And... She's like, you know what? Somebody just gave notice today. Amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. She said, are you available? Are you around? I said, I can be over there in like an hour. She's like, okay, great. We'll see you then. So I basically jumped probably an entire file of applicants just because I called like right when this guy gave notice, went in and they hired me on the spot. And it was entry-level runner we had a different term for it. We called it coverage. And I'm not really sure why, but you essentially were a runner. And what was great about this place was the tech staff would teach. They would show you how to do stuff. They'd show you how to align a tape machine. They would show you the way Skyline set up a drum kit or when you broke down how to wind a cable, where the mic stands go, how to normal a console. There was a active education there. So it was like a crash course. It was amazing. It was stuff that I never learned in school or anything. And the more you were interested, the more they would throw at you. So 
I was probably on coverage, you know, runner there for about, I don't know, about three years and started to segue in as an, as an assistant and was an assistant there for like three years, I guess. Wow. The runner position was a paid position? Well, barely. Mm. It was, it was four bucks an hour with no overtime. Wow. That was a, and that was a, I took a pay cut when I left the voiceover studio. The voiceover studio was eight bucks an hour. And so I took a 50% cut. I remember my dad thought I was out of my fucking mind. He was, oh, yeah. he was so mad at me. And I was like, I, I don't really have a choice. So I was doing that and I was waiting tables when I wasn't working at the studio. So it was a lot. It was round the clock working, working, working just to, make ends meet. I go to the deli every morning and I'd buy like a small container of tuna fish and four pieces of bread. And that was lunch and dinner. And I could do that for like five bucks or something. You know, everything was a bit cheaper back then, but. But yeah, I mean, you're trying to survive in New York. Right. I, I mean, I was living in Hoboken at the time. So Hoboken back then was was a bit cheaper than New York. And I mean, New York wasn't anywhere near as exorbitant as it is now, but I had like a little railroad apartment with another guy in, in Hoboken and yeah, just went for it. So three years as a runner, three years as an assistant. Yeah. Clearly that was the place to be. Did you get a pay raise when you became an assistant? Yeah. Yeah. As you assisted, your pay went up. I think I topped out at 10 bucks an hour without overtime. They didn't have to pay overtime back then somehow, but they did actually give us health benefits, which was pretty incredible for a studio. Kind of a unicorn situation at that time. Wouldn't you agree? It was, it, it totally was like, there were some things about the studio that were super annoying and irritating, but I think compared to a lot of other people's experiences, it really was a pretty great situation. How long did you stay there at that studio? I left there in 93. I got a job out in LA at Oceanway, which was like the studio to work at. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. How did that job offer come? Well, that came through one of the guys that I assisted a lot at Skyline was a a mixer named Kevin Killen, Mm. who's a brilliant mixer, made a lot of amazing records. Peter Gabriel So among them. And I think he mixed a couple of U2 records, a bunch of Elvis Costello. He made really great records and it was really a lot of fun to work with him. I learned a lot. And at that point, I had started dating my now wife who lived in LA. So we were playing the long distance game. You know, back then you could buy a ticket out of the Village Voice and you could fly as somebody else. They never checked the name. So people would always be selling tickets that they had left over from work or whatever. So you pick up a ticket for 90 bucks and you'd go as somebody else. And just for the listener, you could also smoke on a plane back then. Exactly. (laughs) You could sit in the smoking section of the plane. Exactly. The smoking section. So at that point, the writing was on the wall in New York. A lot of the smaller studios were getting chased out of business by a bigger studio called Hit Factory. And that's a whole other long, sordid story. And you could see that studios were just, they just couldn't afford to stay open because they were just getting undercut left and right. So at that point, I became very interested in the idea of going out to LA and just seeing what it was about. And Kevin, who did a bunch of work, you know, he did a bunch of work out at Ocean Way, said to me, well, if you want to go out there, let me know and I'll hook you up with an interview. I'll get you an introduction to the studio manager over there. They were actually putting in their first SSL console at that point out of record one. They put in a hundred input SSL. It was, I think it was like the biggest console in the world at that time. Nobody else had done. Ocean Way was putting it in. Yeah, but at that point, Alan also owned a studio out in the Valley called Record One, which was Val Garay's old place. And that's where the giant 8078 lived that they built for Quincy Jones called Cyclops. (laughs) And that's now in Studio One at East West. For the audience, when we say Alan, we're talking about Alan Sides. Yes, sorry, Alan Sides. They put the 100 input SSL in the other room and it was so big they had it turn the live room into the control room. Mm. So I thought, well, that could be my in because I was working on SSL consoles in New York. So I was super familiar on top of my game on them. This will be my my way in. So went out and met Alan, met a guy named Jack Waltz, who was the then studio manager. And that was my pitch. I was like, I can come out. I can be the SSL guy. Seems like a good match to me. (laughs) They're like, all right, well, you know, we'll think about it. We'll think about it. Like two days later, he calls me and he's like, okay, we want you. Come on out. When can you be here? 
And I think this was like in August or July. And I was like, I can be there end of September. I was like, that's kind of the earliest I can I can get out there just because I've got my lease and I've got all this, all these other loose ends to tie up. And he said, okay, we'll see you end of September. And three weeks later or a month later, I get a call from him and he's like, where are you? How come you're not here yet? We need you out here now. And I was like, oh shit. I was like, well, I can't get out there now. I got to give notice at my other studio. I got to like get out of my apartment and get rid of all my stuff. And he's like, all right, well, get out here as quick as you can. So that completely freaked me out. <laughs> but I managed to, to make it all work. I got out to LA and started working at Ocean Way. Funny enough, I maybe worked in the SSL room twice the whole time I was there, but it was great. I mean, what a amazing opportunity to be out there. Just all the different artists, all the different engineers, the weather, the weather, my girlfriend, now my wife, it all made sense. And within the first three months I was out, we had the Northridge earthquake. <laughs> we had the a whole bunch of fires out in Malibu, which turned into the mudslides, and we had OJ. So I was like, wow. I was like, so this is LA. All right. Yeah, welcome to California. Yeah, welcome to California. So I worked at Ocean Way for, I guess, like almost two years, the better part of two years. And towards the end of my stay there, I started working with Rick Rubin. And I started engineering for him through Richard Dodd, indirectly through Richard Dodd. Yeah. It was the Chili Peppers record, One Hot Minute, which the, the Chili Peppers record nobody talks about. <laughs> it was taking forever to make it. There were issues with certain band members kind of checking in and out, kind of hairy. So vocals in particular were taking a really long time. And Richard was Richard lived in Nashville, as I think he still does. He said, you know, I'm really tired of being here. I miss my family. This has just been way too long. I need to go home. And he looks square at me and he's like, you want to take over? And I said, yes. I was like, are you down to refer me? He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? I was like, yes, let's go. So he told Rick he was leaving. And the next two days later, they brought in somebody else to engineer the sessions. They did not take his referral advice. They brought in a guy from up in Vancouver. He was out of the Bruce Fairburn camp. That's where like Bob Rock came from and oh, uh, yeah. a couple other great people came out of that camp. So this guy comes down who, who we're not going to name. We're going to leave him nameless. Okay. That's fair. Back then, Ocean Way used these amazing old Ampex machines, ATR uh, 120s. Multi-track machine. Yeah. And they were super, super finicky, like really weird machines. The remote was all like plasma. So it was very janky and it would do weird stuff if you weren't really paying attention. And what the assistants who had been there longer showed me is it's all about like having your presets and just, you really just have to stay organized because it was really easy to inadvertently have one track in repro instead of sync when you were punching in or to have two tracks armed accidentally. It happened way too much. So 
what kind of became a thing at Ocean Way was the engineer would walk in and he'd turn the remote around and give it to the assistant and say, you're running tape. I'm not touching this thing, which was amazing because you became immersed. You became part of the session and really like one-on-one with whoever was playing when they're punching because the punch in on the machine was easy, like going into record. It was the coming out that was insane. It was if you were coming out on, say, the one of the bar, you would have to come out of record on the and before the one because it took that long for the bias to come back up. Very counterintuitive. It's really counterintuitive. And the first time you do it, you're like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. But you kind of develop the feel for it. And once you develop the feel, it, it worked great. But when somebody wanted to punch in on piano, you had to be like, you know what? It's just not going to work. It just, it just wouldn't work because there's all this sustain. Like you would always hear the sustain get chopped off. It was nearly impossible to come out. Like you could go in fine, but nearly impossible to come out. Hmm. And the same with drums. But other stuff, you could get away with it. But those two, ugh, terrible. Anything with transients that you could potentially cut off right. on the next bar. Very unforgiving. So getting back to the, the Chili Peppers thing, the engineer walks in the room. We're about to start. So I grab the remote like I had been doing to run tape. And he looks at me and he's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to I'll run tape for you. And he looks at me, he's like, why would I want you to run tape for me? And I was like, well, I was like, these machines are kind of finicky. And if you haven't worked on them before, it can be a challenge. So I've been working on it for a while. I'm pretty comfortable on it and happy to help out. And he shakes his head and he's like, no, I'm going to run tape. And I was like, oh, I was like, okay, sure. Good luck. Yeah. And I said, well, let me show you a couple of tricks and a couple of things on the remote just so you don't get into any trouble. And again, he gives me this blank stare and <laughs> something to the, uh, I think I know how to work a tape remote. And I was like, okay, all you, man. And went to the couch, sat down and just kind of watched him bury himself, just making all the mistakes that you could on the remote and getting Rick and Anthony more and more frustrated because it just it just wasn't working. He just couldn't figure it out. And, you know, he turned around and yelling at me. And I was like, yeah, you know, sorry. Here, do this, this, and this. And just really no interest in, in being helped out. So next day, he was gone. Wow. That quick. It was, it was pretty evident that it wasn't going to work. And the next day, Anthony didn't come in. But I got a call from Rick's assistant, and she said, Rick is going to Sound Factory tomorrow with Anthony to do vocals. Will you go with him and do it? I was like, fuck yeah. Different tape machine. Different tape machine, different studio. Like wow. my my first solo flight in another studio, and that's where it started. And I worked with Rick for the next 10 years. Oh my gosh, what a great run. Yeah, and got to work on a bunch of amazing records, worked with amazing artists, and it really was an incredible experience, just a great learning experience and just 
being in the room with so many talented people, it really was pretty amazing. Now, Rick's a, a very different kind of producer compared to the average person, and he's had great success. So are there certain things that you really, to this day, look back on and go, wow, he really taught me this? What are those things that you learned from him? I think what I really learned from him was that it's all about the song and not about the part. And the part has to serve the song. Mm. And if it doesn't, it can be the coolest baseline in the world. But if it's not doing what it's supposed to, then it needs to be a different part. The thing about Rick was he could be brutally honest and you either liked that or you didn't. He wasn't really sugarcoating stuff when we were working with people. And I thought there was something really great about that because we're in this world where there's so many people who will just blow smoke up your ass and just lots of yes men. And I think the fact that he wasn't was what kind of made him different and got people's attention. And I don't want to say I'm as cold-blooded as that, but what I've taken from that is the appreciation of being straightforward. If you don't think something's working, speak up and say, I don't think this is working, and here's why. And not pointing fingers necessarily, not pointing fingers at all, but just here's here's what's going on. This isn't working for the song. We need to look at this a different way. Let's come at this from a different angle. Do you think that that has any relevance to the fact that you're, I'm assuming Rick originally was from the East Coast? Yes. Do you think that that has any part of this, the two of you being from the East Coast? (laughs) I think it probably does. I I definitely, when I was first starting out, I got a lot of, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) (laughs) But there definitely is something to the, the East Coast attitude versus the West Coast attitude. Sure. Yeah. One of my brothers has spent a considerable amount of his life on the East Coast. And every time he'd come to California, some comments that he would make, he's like, some of these people here really kind of blow smoke and and can't just be direct with you. Yeah. I like to call it the land of yes, (laughs) because nobody wants to say no. You go in and you have a meeting and the A&R person or whoever you're meeting with would be like, this is amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. We're totally going to do this. Yeah. We, we want you in on this for sure. And then crickets. Right. And they'll like throw it at somebody else to get rid of me or to get rid of the situation. They don't want to be seen as the guy who goes, nah, not working. Or I don't think this is a good fit. When, yeah, that's kind of all you, I really want is just like, all right, if you don't think this is a good fit, just Tell me that so I can move on. You can move on. No hard feelings. Let's just go about our separate ways. Yeah. Instead of a, okay, well, I'm going to call you the end of the week and we're going to, uh, and we'll figure it out only to never hear from them again. Right. And that still goes on. I mean, that's part of the business and it is what it is. And I've learned after all this time not to take it so personally and I can get past it, but God, I remember when I was first starting out, it used to just kill me and it would just make me a nervous wreck waiting around for this person to call who never had any intention of calling me. And it was, 
It was terrible. So I think what, what I've taken from that and maybe a dash of my East Coast personality is when a band or an artist sends me music, I try and listen to it right away. I try and give somebody a, I like it or I'm not interested as quickly as possible because I hated when people would do that to me where I'd sit around waiting for somebody to give me an answer. So I try and not do that to anybody else. So if somebody sends me a record that they want me to mix and I'll listen to it and it's not really my cup of tea or it's just not something that I think is going to work, then I'll email them back within 24 hours and say, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm sorry. Yeah. And by doing that, I'm, I'm sure you would agree that like, if you don't respond to somebody, then they're going to keep coming at you. Hey, did right. you get my email? Hey, what do you yeah. think? Hey, it's like, you could just say no. And then they, they go, oh, okay. Right. Right. And they walk away. And what's happened, not a lot of times, but a couple of times where I've said, honestly, this isn't for me. And, you know, they'll kind of push, well, you know, why, why, why? And I'll be like, well, honestly, it just doesn't sound like it's ready to be mixed. The songs just aren't there yet, in my humble opinion. And I've had bands or artists come back to me months later saying, you know what? We heard what you were talking about. And we've reworked some of the stuff. Would you be down to listen to it again and see if it's something that interests you? And lo and behold, a couple of times I've been like, wow, you guys really, you raised the bar. It sounds great. I'm in. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Dave Schiffman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. And be sure to tune in next week for part two, and we'll continue the discussion. Hey, there's a free download that you can get if you go to workingclassaudio.com. Uh, you can download the 15 simple tips to help you survive as an audio professional. Those are tips drawn from interviews of Andrew Sheps, Eric Valentine, Steve Albini, and Jack Dino. And you can get that if you go to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. And that's about it. But I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and, of course, the great Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me a message. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 